Exodus 35. Uh, so if you haven't been here with us, the immediate background is God gave his covenant at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, to his people. The people said, yes, we will follow them. Moses goes up to get the uh, instructions to build a tabernacle, which is a place where God will meet with his people. While he's up there, the people of Israel made a false god and chose a different way of worship, rejecting and breaking the covenant with God that they had just made a few weeks prior. Moses comes down, uh, kills the disruptive people because they were uh, putting the camp in danger, and then intercedes for Israel before God and says, God, uh, based on my relationship with you, will you not kill them and instead renew the covenant with them? God listens to Moses as the uh, intercessor, renews the covenant. Moses comes down, and his face is glowing, and he shares with the people what God has done, the good news that he has renewed the covenant with them. And now we get to our passage. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days. But the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair. Ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set into the ephod and in the breastplate. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. We're going to skip these next verses because they, they reiterate the materials for the, the tabernacle in verse 20. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all of its services, and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. And every man with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, red skins of rams, and badger skins, brought them. Everyone who had an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering, and everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they spun, of blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine linen. And all the women whose heart was stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers bought, brought onyx stones, and stones be set in the ephod and in the breastplate, and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a freewill offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord is called by the name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And he has put in, the, in his heart 
the ability to teach. In him, and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker and blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. In Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan whom the Lord had put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offerings which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from, each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. For the material they had was sufficient for the work to be done, indeed too much. Finally, Israel is moving forward. They're restarting. They had sinned. They were stopped in their tracks. And now, finally, they're moving forward which is important for us too, because we sin. How do we move forward after we messed up? How do we fit into God's work in this world? What's our relationship to what God is doing and to what we're doing? What role do our actions play in the Christian life? We know the sinful part. Sin separates, sin causes conflict, sin causes problems. Okay, so we repent, now what? God called his people to depend on him, and he always provides. More specifically in this passage, we're going to see three things. That you rest before you work. That you give by grace. And that you are enabled to work. In that order. It's important that we go in that order, because that's what the Bible teaches. So we rest before we work. We give by grace and we are enabled to work. So look what the first thing here says. So in the passage, Moses brings God's word, and, he, and there's a story, the story of God giving him instructions to renew the covenant, and him coming down from the mountain, and people interacting with him. And then strangely, it goes back to the, the Sabbath regulations. If you were here last week, remember he gave this whole list of, of laws and worship. Why is the Sabbath part disconnected from those? It's set here to preface and to prepare them for the rest of the passage, the rest of the book even. See, now what's going to happen is that the covenant has been renewed. Now they're going to build a place where God will meet with them. The covenant establishes a place to meet. But before they can build the place to meet, they have to observe the Sabbath. And what is the Sabbath? It says it here on the seventh day, that'll be a Saturday. You don't work. The Sabbath was the foundation of the covenant life. So God makes a covenant just with Israel. And the foundation, so when you lived your life in the covenant, what was the most important thing to you? It was the Sabbath. It was the foundation for living in covenant. So important 
that if you didn't keep it, it says whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. If you built a fire on Saturday, you would be killed. Does that seem a little extreme? Death penalty for cooking a meal? Death penalty for carrying wood? That's too much. Why was that such a dramatic thing? And why is it separated from all the other laws? God is saying the covenant is built on something. It's built on you obeying and me working. He said, obey me and I will clear out the land. Obey me and I will give you blessings. In other words, you believe and you obey and I provide. And so the Sabbath was a way to say that we're not going to work today because we're depending on God. We are choosing to let God work for us. That was the, the whole thing about the covenant. So that means if you did work on the Sabbath, you are saying, I don't need God. In fact, I reject God today. Now, when you reject God and you're in a covenant with God, there's only one choice. God rejects you. So in the covenant, you rest on the Sabbath and God provides. But also in the covenant, if you work, you're saying God's not enough. God's not good enough, powerful enough, or worth following enough for me to stop working one day. So the death penalty was a way to say, choose God or choose death. Now, when you phrase it that way, it makes sense because God is life. To reject God is to reject life. So you weren't punished for building a fire. You were not killed for working. You were killed for rejecting God. We don't like that because we don't live in a country that behaves that way. But this is a country built around God's covenant. There's no life outside of God. And so to choose to reject God, to choose to work on the Sabbath, is to choose to reject God. Now, if you're familiar with the sermons that I preach, normally we talk about what God wants us to do, how we can't do it, and then the gospel at the end. The gospel's up front in this passage. You see, the gospel is up front because God wants to say, until you get the gospel, you can't do any work. That's why the Sabbath regulation comes before the instructions. See, the rest of the book of, of, of Exodus is about building the tabernacle. But before we build the tabernacle, before we contribute, before we give, before we work, he says, stop and don't work. Until you understand the Sabbath rest, you can't work. Christ in the New Testament is built on the same principle. The Messiah is our rest. You don't get to work into it. You first start with the rest, then you move forward. Romans 4 says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? So he's speaking to the Jews. Abraham's the greatest. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Contrast between believing and work. He didn't work, and it was counted. He believed, and it was treated as if it were work. Now to him who works, on the other hand, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. If you want to start your Christian life by working, you're accruing debt. And God wants what's owed to him. So the more you work as a foundation for Christianity, the more you owe. If you're going to operate on the work principle, then God wants what's due him. 
You see, Christianity is built on stopping and giving up and resting and not working. That's really hard for people to hear because our whole life is taught about trying and achieving and moving forward and putting your best effort and do the best that you can and give 100%, which is why God has to remind the Israelites and remind us that work produces debt. But grace produces rest. Which will you choose right now? Will you choose to work your way into God's grace or will you choose to rest in it? You see, the outcome is drastically different. If you'll just stop and rest in Christ, you get all the work that Christ did. But if you choose to work, you're separated from God, just like on the Sabbath day. If you choose to work to get into God's good graces to be found in favor with God, you will die. But I'm working hard. You'll die. See, imagine on the Sabbath day, if an Israelite said, I'm going to go and work on the temple, work on the tabernacle. That sounds great, doesn't it? God says, you'll die for that. But I mean well. I'm trying to serve. God says, no, you're rejecting me. So when we come to God, if we're basing anything on our behavior, our work, we are saying, judge me by my behavior. And there's only one outcome to that, death. But if we rest in Christ, we're saying, judge me by his behavior. Judge me as I rest by the work Christ did. Those are your choices. Machen said, if Christ provides only a part of our salvation, leaving us to provide the rest, so perhaps you are saved from hell, but now you need to provide the rest of the sanctification or the holy living, then we are still hopeless under the load of sin. For no matter how small the gap which must be bridged before salvation can be attained, the awakened conscience sees clearly that our wretched attempt at goodness is insufficient even to bridge that gap. Christ will do everything or nothing. Christ will do all the work or he'll do none of the work. That's your choice. You'll either accept all of Christ's work and none of yours or all of yours and none of his. That's a dramatic dilemma, isn't it? That's why he says, rest. And that's why the New Testament says Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Imagine it's a Saturday and Christ is here. He does all the work and we just sit there and watch him. That's the basis of Christianity. That's hard to hear. Luke 18, there's a story about a man who comes to Christ and he says, so when Jesus, he says, come to Christ, how am I inherit eternal life? How can I live in God's kingdom? And God says, obey the law. And he says, I've done all these things. I've obeyed the law. I've loved my neighbor. I've honored my father and mother, not killed anybody. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A camel through the eye of a needle? In other words, it's impossible. This rich man came to Jesus and says, how do I enter into your kingdom, into the eternal life, into the happiness of, of your uh, rule? 
And Jesus says, give up everything. Give up everything and follow me. You see, the choice is there again. Rest, give up, stop, and follow me. And the man says, oh, man, that's too much. I have to give up too much. Now, we don't have riches like he did, but riches in that culture was power. Do you have power? Do you have something you've worked hard for? Maybe it's a relationship that you've worked hard for. Maybe it's a job position. Maybe it's a persona that you've presented forward to people and you've spent a long time cultivating that, that you're smart or that you're friendly or that you're kind. You put a lot of energy into that. Jesus is saying, give that up and follow me. And many people are going to say, it's too much. I'll keep the law. I'll obey. I'll serve. Jesus, let me serve. Jesus says, no, give up. And too many of us are so attached to what we've worked for that we'll miss out on God's blessings. Some of us, perhaps you're not a believer, and you said, I'll follow Christ with my works. God says, no, you'll never see heaven. Christ himself will reject you. She said, but I cast out demons in your name. I helped the poor in your name. I came to church in your name. And God said, I never knew you. You were over there working. All my people are over here resting. Christianity calls for us to take a Sabbath from work and let Christ work for us. Coach says, we shall not work with God if we have not known what it is to rest with him. You see, the rest of this passage is about working. It's about doing. But God doesn't let you work with him until you rest in him. So right now, ask yourself, does my behavior, does my work, Tell me that I'm okay with God? Does my faithfulness, is that the basis for my relationship with God? Do you feel guilty when you don't work hard enough? Or when you don't do enough? You are trusting your works to get to heaven. God says, give up, take a break, relax, and let Jesus do everything. That's the call of Christianity. And that means that we get Christ's righteousness. But then God says, that's a blessing, isn't it, to let Christ work for you? But the blessing doesn't end there. You see, once you've learned to rest in Christ and put all your worth and all your weight and all your righteousness and all your status on Christ, then he says, but now you get to work with me. So often we think of Christian service as a duty. It's not. It's a blessing. Once we know we don't have to do it, then we realize we get to do it. And if you feel that Christianity is a burden, it's because you are working to get to heaven. Give up. Then you'll want to. And that's what happens here. He says, the whole congregation. And Moses, verse 4, Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel. He didn't speak to the leaders. You know, this is different, isn't it? Remember, he would call up the 70 elders or the leaders or Aaron or Moses. This is the whole congregation because everyone's included. The whole congregation together... He spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, so it's everyone, it's a community, it's a corporate event. The whole community is going to work together. And he says, take from among you an offering, whoever is of a willing heart. Now it's individual. God's people are both corporate and individual. We both are a community, and we can't live outside of the community, and yet we are responsible for our own behavior. 
That's hard to put together. But just because we don't understand it doesn't mean we don't live by it. You cannot be a Christian. You cannot be one of God's people if you don't come together as a community. You can't live the Christian life. And yet, you can't put everything on the community. You have to live it. And so he says here is the entire community comes together. All together, but individual, but also man and woman. Now, 2018, that doesn't strike us as odd. Of course, men and women. What else would you say? But Exodus was written in a patriarchal society. Women were property. That should offend you, but it's the truth of the culture. Women were property. And even when they weren't property, they were still represented by their husband or father. You can't understand this passage if you don't understand that culture. So look, if you, if you have your Bibles, look back in verse 34, in chapter 34, and verse 23, God is giving rules for worship. He says, three times in the year, all your men shall appear before the Lord. Does that mean the women and children didn't have to appear before the Lord? No. In a patriarchal society, the men represent it. So when the man would come to worship, the family would come with him. So what he's saying here is the whole family does. That's how the Old Testament basically operates. So when you see, let every man worship God, they mean everyone. And so he says here, let everyone, whoever wants to. But then he specifies, verse 22, both men and women. Verse 24, 25, women. Verse 26, women. If you read this in the context, that would come like a slap in the face. Because that culture says, who cares about the women? If you get the men to do it, the women will follow. God takes time to say, everyone, including the women. Why? Because it's corporate and it's individual. And God is saying man and woman were made in the image of God, and therefore man and women need to serve God. What does this teach us about ourselves? We always operate in a cultural context. It may not be patriarchal, and it may be. God says here in verse uh, 20, all the congregation, and in verse 21, then everyone came whose heart was stirred. Doesn't that cover men and women? Doesn't it? Verse 22, then they came both, then verse uh, 24, everyone who offered an offering. Doesn't that include everyone? So why did he specifically mention women? If everyone means everyone, then why mention women? Because God knows what his people need. And he knows that if a patriarchal culture read everyone, they would hear men. God didn't mean men. He meant everyone, but they would hear men because of the culture. And so he goes out of his way to say every man and all women. That's an important cultural reference to teach us how to view things. We can't just say things like everyone needs to worship. Everyone is important. We have to make sure to name those who would be left out otherwise like God did. In our culture, that's, that's difficult because of politics, but try to put your politics on hold for just about a minute. It's tough, I know. An example in our culture is to say all lives matter. Absolutely, biblically true. But people don't hear that. So we sometimes specify black lives matter. Put your politics, we're talking about lies and people. 
Why? Doesn't that, isn't that included in All Lives Matter? Yes, just like women are included in everyone. But sometimes you have to go out of your way to make sure everyone's included, to make sure everyone is affirmed, to make sure everyone is given the dignity that is already there. And so when we say Black Lives Matter, in this context, we're saying Black Lives Matter as well as White Lives, as well as Asian, as well as Latino. We're making sure that we know that all lives matter by naming those who might be overlooked or who have been overlooked. We don't live in this culture anymore. We live in our culture, and it's our biblical duty to name those that God cares about, especially when they've been marginalized. That means sometimes naming women specifically. Sometimes it means naming racial minorities specifically. Whatever the cultural condition is, we go out of our way, just like God did here, to name those who might be overlooked. And as a result, we name everyone. The goal here is that everyone serves God. But look what he says about this. So everyone's to serve God, but how does he get them to serve God? He said, everyone came whose heart was stirred. So God says, I want you to give a bunch of stuff to me. I want you to give up gold and time and energy. He says, give gold, give stuff, but also give your talents. He says, I want you to come and work. Men need to give. They had to go out and chop down trees. The women had to spend uh, clothes in this culture. How does he get it from them? Does he pressure? Does he command? Does he incentivize? No. He says, whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring. Now, I've tried to raise money before, and that doesn't work. You've got to have campaigns, and you've got to have incentives, and you've got to sell it. But God says, no, whoever wants to, and there's no consequences. There's no consequences for not doing it. Well, that's not going to work. It's not going to work unless people want to. And that's what this passage says. It says over and over, those who have a willing heart, everyone whose heart was stirred, whose spirit was willing, both men and women, as many as had willing hearts, everyone who offered a different offering with a willing heart, women whose hearts were stirred, the children brought a free will offering, men and women whose hearts were willing. See, it's repeating it over and over and over again. It's giving you a foundation for giving. How do I get you to give? I don't. You get yourself to give. You see the opportunity presented and you want to. Why would you want to? No pressure. God is saying, I'm going to depend on the fact that you want to to get everything I need. He ends up getting tons of stuff, literally two tons of gold, three tons of silver. Why? Remember Israel? They're not great. They're not a good people. Why would they do it now? Because they just immediately came off of God not killing them. In the previous chapter, God says, I'm not going to kill you. And then he says, would you like to give some money to me? And they're like, oh, of course, take it all. Not, well, maybe this will work for me. Let's check our budget. They're like, man, God's renewed the covenant. He's not killed us. Now he wants us to give. Of course we want to give. You see, the grace of God motivated them to give. Their hearts were changed by what God had done for them. God first gave to them, and then they gave back to God freely. 
That's what happens to us. But we didn't just escape death. We received Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The measure of Christ's gift, remember who Christ is, the Son of God come to earth to die for all mankind? Now he's giving you a gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But they also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. You ask, what has God given me? Well, look at the work. Look at Christ's work. What did he do? He came from heaven, lived on earth. But that wasn't enough. As bad and hard as that was, he then died for us. When you get that, when you receive that grace, and when you realize that grace, and then God says, I'd like for you to give some money, you're responsible like, well, of course. Oh, that's obvious. I'd love to do it. When the pastor wants you to give money, he's banking on his gifts to you. When the church wants you to give money, they're depending on what they've done for you. If they've done a lot for you, you'll respond. But what the Bible is saying is you see what God has done for you, then you respond to that. Not to what man has done, but to God, what God has done. In fact, this is a measure of your Christianity. Not how much you give, but how much you want to. See, we like to say, I, I am a Christian because I give. No. What's your heart? Reichen says, giving to God from the heart is one of the true markers of a Christian. Indeed, unless we give from the heart, it is doubtful whether we are Christians at all. Unless we give from the heart. So you may give, but God doesn't just, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. He's giving you an opportunity to share your heart. And if your heart does not want to give, do you know that Christ gave to you? Have you received the gift? Perhaps you haven't. Perhaps you're trying to buy it. So you first receive the gift, and then you respond to it out of gratefulness. And God loves a cheerful giver. And our church should love cheerful givers. And any sort of pressure to give goes against God's plan. How do we get you to give? By telling you what God has done for you. And then you'll give to the work of God. So we rest in Christ's work, then we give out of Christ's gifts, and then finally we're enabled to work by the Spirit. You see, God says you don't, get to, you don't have to sit back and watch. You can participate. So in this passage it says, And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God. That's the first time in the Bible that's, that phrase is used, filled with the Spirit of God. There were workers called to represent God. You see, God wanted to come down to earth and live in this tent, this tabernacle, heaven on earth. And he wanted the people to build it for him. He's giving them the chance to recover what Adam lost. Adam and Eve were God's representatives on earth. Genesis 1 said, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Who is the ruler of the earth? Who is the king? God is. But he lets people share in the responsibility. He says, I'm in charge, but you subdue. 
the amazing gift of representing God on earth. But man sins. Now he says, Bezalel, Uri, the son of Uri, and Aholiab, and all the people, you get to do that work again. You get to represent me on earth and build this tabernacle. Workers are called to represent God, just like we're called to represent God. A holy nation, priests, ambassadors. Go into all nations and make disciples. Build the kingdom. Spread out God's rule. Represent God on earth. That's what God wants from us. Not in our own power. You see, Bezalel, these men were not to build a tabernacle by their own abilities. They were filled with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. God says, Bezalel, you build it. Bezalel said to himself, I have no idea how to do this. And God says, I'll give what I command. I demand something from you. Build a tabernacle that's perfect. And I'll give you what you need to obey. God both commands and gives. So he fills him with the spirit to do what he commands him to do. In verse 36, uh, chapter 36 and verse 1, And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord had put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary. See, they were gifted for a purpose. Shall do according to all the Lord has commanded. The Spirit says, I'll empower you to do two things. Obey my word in order to build the sanctuary. That's what we do. The Holy Spirit has called us to build up the body, to build up the house of God. But we don't know how to change people. So he says, I'll give you the spirit, the gifts, in order to do that. Francis Grimke says, from beginning to end, all effective work is due to the presence and power of the spirit in the preacher and in the people to whom he speaks. The more fully we understand this and the more fully we depend upon the spirit, the more certain we may be of the results. All effective work. God says, I'll give these men the abilities through the Spirit to obey my word and to build the sanctuary. The Spirit has given every Christian. See, this is where it's different. You see, he only gave the Spirit to some back then. The rest of the people only got to give stuff. But now, the Spirit has fallen upon every Christian. This is a new covenant where every Christian gets gifts. Do you want to work with God? You don't have the abilities. But the Spirit has given them to you. The Spirit has fallen upon every Christian and given gifts. Not just the gift of salvation, not just the gift of justification and a right standing with God, but gifts that you can use to build the church. 1 Corinthians 12. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to not just the workers, not just the leaders, to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge, to another faith, to another gifts of healing. You see how it's distributing? Before it was all given to the same people. Now it's distributed. But one, the one and same Spirit works in all these things, distributing to each one individually. You, if you're a believer, have been given the gifts of the Spirit. God himself has come to live in you and empower you, enable you to work for him. But as he wills, for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink into one body, into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Are you a believer? 
you have the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you not a believer? You have nothing. What's the purpose here? So that each member of the church can work for God. We rest in Christ's work, but the Spirit works through us. Who gets to work? The pastor? The men? Or everybody? See, working off of this principle, we go to Acts chapter 2, where the new covenant is initiated. And Peter says, And it will be in the last days, these days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all people, that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. The new covenant, everyone gets a piece. Everyone gets a spirit. The spiritual gifts are given to everyone. Now, that hasn't always been clear to us. Often it's been the pastor gets the gifts to serve the people. Or perhaps the men get the gifts to serve the church. But the gifts are to everyone. So to be specific, and then you can apply this broadly, spiritual gifts have been given to Christian women. What gifts have been given to Christian women? Praying, preaching, teaching, helping, administration, healing, encouraging, singing, counseling, giving, leadership, wisdom, knowledge, faith, discernment. All of those have been given to every woman in the body. Now, we, 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 the Bible teaches, remember, it's, the Spirit is given to follow the Word, and the Word does restrict some offices to men, the office of an elder, the office of a pastor, but it does not restrict the gifts. Some of you women may be called to preach, and you're in a culture that says you are never allowed to present the Word of God. But doesn't Ephesians say that we preach Christ, that we proclaim Christ? We don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ. Is that we men preach Christ and the women sit quietly? What does the word say? This is not the only opportunity to exercise your gifts up here. That mentality will destroy the body. The spirit is given to everyone. Some women and some men and some whoever have been given the gift of leadership, of encouraging. Are you using those gifts? Or are you letting your own internal fear stand in the way? your unbelief, or perhaps you're letting outside people stand in the way. What does the Bible say? You see, the Spirit was given to these men to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all the Lord has commanded. The Bible sets the standard. And the standard says that God has given to each member individually, and he does not specify gender gifts, so that they can be used to build the body. 1 Corinthians 14 says, So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. The Old Testament has been fulfilled in the New. A few men got to build up the tabernacle where God would live. Now all of us get to build up the house of God. Not this building, the people. The people are built up by your gifts where the Spirit works through you. The Spirit works through people by the Word. You see, he says they will follow the word. God doesn't give you gifts so that you can change anybody. He gives you gifts so that you can take the word and apply it and give it and share it. You want to build up the body? You want to be a part of God's work? Use your gift to apply and to point to the word. 
That's where the Spirit works. The Scriptures focused on Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 says, We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by an open statement of truth, we should commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. You want to build up this church? You want to see this church grow? You want to see this church be successful? You want to see people move forward? How? By faithfully handling the word and pointing to Christ. That's how the church is built. Whatever psychological or management or promotional ideas that are not in the word are not necessary. Whatever charisma or gifting outside of the word is not necessary. What's necessary is that the spirit works through us to take the word faithfully and use it to point to Christ. And then the house of God is built up. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to trust entirely that God's spirit has given you what you need and that all of that is in the scripture and that's enough? The scripture is enough because the spirit works through it. Then we get to participate. But the point of all of this is to point to Christ. You see, by the more we point to Christ and away from ourselves, the more we are built up. That's what Christ's sacrifice did. He took all of us on him, pays for it, and then turns it back on us to build us up. The song says, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Who bears the load of this church? The word. Christ in the scriptures through the Holy Spirit. Christ works. We respond and the spirit enables. Let's pray.